0: You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and joining me today is State Representative Andrew Fink, who represents Michigan State House District 35. That's the entirety of Hillsdale and Branch Counties in the city of Hudson in Lenawee County. Thanks for joining us, Representative Fink. Thank you, Josh. So I want to start today with some of the controversy over the Speaker of the House vote here in Michigan and the aftermath there. So I think everyone by now has heard of the fight over Speaker Kevin McCarthy in D.C., but Very few Michiganders have any idea that there was some controversy, at least, uh, about the Speaker of the State House up in Lansing. So Democrats took control of the State House and Senate for the first time since the early 80s. Democrat Representative Joe Tate from the Detroit area was nominated to become Speaker. Usually in the State House, I'm told it's a ceremonial vote and unanimous votes are generally expected. Tate ended up with eight opposing votes out of 110 reps. But those who did vote no are claiming that they've had some retaliation with their committee assignments. Representative Steve Carr, for example, from Three Rivers, who's not too far away, wrote back in January, quote, I and many others were scolded for voting against Representative Joe Tate to become Speaker. And in turn, we have received inferior, unfair committee assignments due to our votes. So lots of concerns over some of this Representative Fink, what's your reaction to all of this? And now that we're a little bit into the legislative season, uh, how, how is all of this playing out uh, with committee assignments and everything?
1: Yeah, Josh, well, I think the first year, you're, you're pretty much on, on point. I mean, it's the first time that Democrats have controlled all three of the House, Senate, and the governorship. But they, they did have control of the House uh, in the aughts from 06 to 10. And, of course, they've had the governorship not only the last uh, you know, four-plus years but also uh, from 02 to, to 10 and, uh, under Governor Granholm. Uh, but this is the first time they've had kind of the trifecta of power, um, and you might add that they have a majority of appointees on the Supreme Court as well. Um, you know, I think it was in 20 in 2010 or 2012, one of the two, uh, one of Jace Bolger's two terms as the Republican Speaker of the House, a couple of Democrats did vote against him then, so it's certainly not unprecedented for some members of the other party to vote uh, no on the uh, on the speakership, but it has generally been um, unanimous, largely because there's, um, you know, there's there's typically only one nomination. And so it's not as though we were choosing between nominations There's just one nomination and that person is going to be the speaker. Um, and it's going to be of the majority party. So it's not usually terribly controversial. I do think that uh, Representative Carr is probably right that uh, committee, well, I'm confident that committee assignments were partially shaped by this, as well as a couple other things happening early on. In the last two times that the Democrats took control of the, the House, Republicans were able to, I would say, outmaneuver, but it's really no maneuver at all, just show up earlier um, to enroll the first bill and kind of steal the House Bill 4001, which typically a speaker or the Speaker pro tem introduces as, uh, or some other prominent member of the majority as sort of a, uh, you know, symbolic uh, uh, prioritization of, you know, what the first bill will be. So, a couple of years ago when auto insurance was a big deal, it was House Bill 4001. Last term, my first term, it was an ethics reform that was very uh, important to then uh, Speaker Wentworth. And so, one of my other colleagues um, showed up really early, like the night before uh, introductions became available in order to get the first bill. And it might not be a huge deal, but he did do the kind of the work that was necessary. And unlike the last two times, the speaker didn't just sort of say, okay, fine, you, you earned it. Um, the speaker uh, instead directed the clerks not to enroll that bill by moving offices uh, and saying that a different office for the day was the enrolling clerk's office. And uh, that member representative dealer has also been um appears to move from committees that he otherwise probably would have been on. So all this is to say that I do think that the the new leadership has been sort of surprisingly sensitive about really uh, pretty symbolic measures. And so far, it's been an extremely partisan tone coming from the majority. And while some of these moves uh, by members of my caucus were also partisan, I would just say it's not really up to the minority to be the magnanimous party because We don't control anything anyway, and so the tone is always going to be more heavily set by the uh, majority party, and and so far the tone is, um, again, one of kind of surprising uh, sensitivity towards otherwise pretty immaterial uh, moves.
0: So many of our listeners probably are unaware exactly how these committee assignments are usually determined. How is it different up in Lansing as far as you certainly make it sound like majority gets to basically determine where not only the Democrats are at, but where, where you Republicans are in committees.
1: Yeah, you know, there was also fight over, over the House rules to some degree, and the, and the Speaker wound up backing off and, and introducing rules that were primarily the same as had, uh, as had been used in the previous couple of terms. And, you know, the basic source of concern, I think for a lot of people, including me, is that the, the rules, as they kind of accreted over time, uh, they've added power to the Speakership And committees is one area where the speaker has um, unilateral control over who sits on what committees, even which committees are formed uh, with relatively few. I mean, there are some uh, committees that sort of have a statutory basis. But in general, uh, which committees are are present in a given term is also partially up to the speaker. And uh, who sits on them is also that way. I can tell you that the, the way it kind of works. Uh, in Lansing generally and and we expected and I would say should have worked this term, is that the majority party has its committee on committees. The minority party forms you know sort of a shadow committee on committees and makes recommendations to the majority. And by and large, those recommendations are adopted because they make a lot of sense. and the 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 two caucuses have generally looked at it as though you know you, you choose who leads on which issues in in uh, in your own caucus in this this case that's another thing that that again the uh the speaker has kind of shown uh, surprising um i don't know if sensitivity is really the only word there but uh, i guess the the caucus overall has shown the democratic caucus overall has shown what i would actually characterize as sort of, a sort of fear in my own case my caucus asked that i be made the vice chair of appropriations which uh, is the budget committee where all the money flows through, and evidently afraid that I was uh, either too conservative or too tough a negotiator or both, uh, they instead made that another member of my caucus and, and put me on full appropriations, but not as the chairman, and instead made me the vice chair of, uh, of judiciary, which I'm perfectly happy to, to serve there. I'm a you know I'm an attorney myself. I understand a lot about it, and I'm happy to, to work on it. But the fact that the Democrats were afraid of me being on appropriations is, I guess, not not a great commentary on their own confidence and their own ideas.
0: You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Andrew Fink with us. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your personal agenda items for the committees that you're going to be on, as you just mentioned, and for listeners just tuning in, you're the Republican Vice Chair of the House Judiciary Committee. That's the highest ranking Republican on that committee. And then you're on the Appropriations Committee again, now joining the Tax Policy Committee and Joint Capital Outlay Appropriations Subcommittees. Um, so the thing is, particularly with the Judiciary Committee, because that's where you're highest ranking, what do you have in mind for the coming term? What sort of things you think can get accomplished in the Judiciary Committee? Yeah,
1: well, the judiciary, I should also mention, by the way, I'm on the, um, the Housing Subcommittee of the Economic Development Committee, which is a new committee this term as well. Uh, on judiciary, you know there are uh, there they're going to be a combination of very political issues or issues that that people have very strong political opinions about and issues that are are a little more boring uh, to the average person the uh, sort of thing that maybe only a lawyer could love uh, or a person who's experienced some of uh, of of what the judicial system uh, uh, you know includes could love. an example of the the first set of issues are uh, the expansion of the the proposed expansion of the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act is in front of the Judiciary Committee, or will be. I mean, it's been assigned to that committee. Uh, with The repeal of the 1931, the so-called 1931 abortion ban in Michigan, that's been referred to judiciary. And I expect that some um, bills relating to firearms, maybe including, probably including, uh, so-called red flag laws, uh, or some, I can't remember the term they, they're going to use here, something like... Uh, extreme emergency protective orders or something like that those are also going to go to judiciary so those are the issues that that are pretty high profile and important to people all across the state Um, and then the other set of issues that that will be probably be a little bit more again maybe mundane you might even say more peaceful are things like um, you know the trial court funding plan i mean we might have disagreements about it but it probably won't be heavily political disagreements maybe credential disagreements about how much money is enough for this and how much money is enough for that or what what level of government is the appropriate funding source for this or for that Uh, or uh, uh, we have now what are called specialty courts or uh, treatment courts I think we're going to have a presentation on that in the Judiciary Committee this week and not every member might agree on every last aspect of those uh, courts and how they're being used but you know, we have them in Hillsdale, they, we have them in the UP, we have them in Detroit and in Grand Rapids. So it's something that is working in some form or fashion across the state. And again, I think there'll probably be some positive uh, input from pretty much everybody on the committee on a topic like that. So it's sort of a mixed bag. Some of it I look at myself as being uh, sort of responsible for being a strong voice for the values of my district. And in other issues, I don't think that it really comes down to district by district. Uh, opinions so much uh, as uh, as sort of just good normal functioning of our court system and of the legal system more generally.
0: So since we last spoke, uh, Governor Whitmer gave her annual state of the state address and I-, I want to talk a little bit about that as she's kind of trying to set the tone for the Democrat agenda as they're moving forward. So first when it comes to how our state is doing, which is kind of the purpose of the message, this is what she said Michigan. The state of our state is strong and ready to go. Uh, and then the, the second half of her address, the governor laid out three-part plan for improvement that she's hoping the Democrats will take up. And this is what she wants them to do. Tonight, I'm excited to announce lowering my costs. It's a plan offering immediate relief. It's got three parts. One, let's roll back the retirement tax and save half a million households $1,000 a year. Second, let's expand the working families tax credit, delivering at least $3,000 refunds to 700,000 families. And third, pre-K for all to save families an average of $10,000 a year. So when you heard all of this and are hearing more details as governor's office is releasing more since the state of the state last week, what, what are kind of your reactions, especially being in the tax policy and appropriations committees? You'll probably see a lot of this going through at the committee level.
1: Well, first, Josh, your suggestion that I might see some of this at the committee level makes a lot of sense. But unfortunately, that's just not the way that the majority has been running things this term. We essentially have skipped uh, committees for most important legislation that's already been uh, acted on. So House Bill 4001, a tax bill, House Bill 4002, another tax bill, Senate bills, seven and eight appropriations bills, none of these have gone through our committees. So I haven't actually got to weigh in on any of those. And the way that uh the the legislatures the the majority in, in each chamber decide to handle them is through a conference committee process which excludes input from nearly every member, all but three in each chamber. So it's sensible assumption, but unfortunately not borne out by current practice that uh, that these things will come to to committee. What I would say about um both the tax and spending plans that, that the governor's laid out is that they don't seem to have, in my opinion, uh, coherence. And so uh, I voted against a version of the expansion of the, what she's calling the working families tax credit, uh, otherwise known as the earned income tax credit. I voted against a version of the retirement uh, tax plan, as she, she calls it, which is really just a question of whether you tax retirement income the same or somewhat differently from, from other sources of income uh, or, or, or yeah, another way to look at it would be: Should we tax all uh, uh, senior citizens differently from how we tax people who aren't at that age yet? And you know, these things have suffered from not going through a committee process and being prodded in that way. In my opinion, what we're getting now is a new version of these tax proposals. I have not I have not seen the text. I don't even know if it's available yet because I've been traveling more or less since uh, uh, traveling and touring uh, an agricultural facility in the area since I uh, heard about these things first this morning, so I only know basically the news reports version of them. But uh, the the current scheme appears to be designed to prevent the otherwise uh, guaranteed income tax cut that every Michigan citizen and small business would be entitled to. So as things stand right now, based on FY22 revenues, revenues as of uh, last September, uh, our income tax rate is going to automatically be cut from 4.25 to 4.05. What the governor is proposing today is the EITC expansion, some form of of relief for retirees, um, and a rebate of $180, she said, I think per taxpayer, but I've uh, since confirmed that it would be essentially per per household, meaning uh, it'd be $180 for a married couple with kids and also $180 for a single person uh, with no kids, maybe even living with a couple of other adults. So it's it's a pretty slapdash plan, it appears to me. Um, but it's designed to reduce the state revenues as of the end of FY22 through some accounting maneuvers to prevent the income tax rate from being cut long term, which means a family that earns $50,000 today um, would get a $180 check today and nothing next year Whereas, I can't remember exactly what numbers I've seen, but I think that the estimate is that that family would have their their taxes cut by today, $94, something like that, for the year. Next year, $94 plus uh, whatever the inflationary adjustment to that would be. The year after that, you know, maybe it would be $100. And so in a short period of time, you'd be able to sort of compound the savings by cutting the income tax rate. The governor's doing whatever she can to avoid that now.
0: You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Fink with us. I want to end today talking about three of the bills that you voted on and have become law uh, so far this legislative session. So it it looks like there's only three. Two of them are appropriations and then one on the primaries. So I want to ask you quickly about the appropriations ones since there's plenty of stuff in there. Uh, You voted no on both Senate Bill 7 and 8 there's lots of different programs in there. What are your big top line concerns with those pieces of legislation?
1: Let's do Senate Bill Eight first. It's It's the smaller of the two, I think it was like two twenty-seven, two $227 million, something like that. It's for schools, public schools. And, you know, that's something that I might've liked to have been able to support a version of, um, you know, most of our kids are in public schools. And so if we have money, that's more or less set aside for them. I'd, I'd like to be a part of the conversation on how it should be spent. Unfortunately, the majority refused to guarantee a percentage of the funding would go to rural districts, and probably all of the districts in my uh, in my district would have counted as rural districts for these purposes. If not, maybe Coldwater and Hillsdale wouldn't have, but the other you know eleven high school or school districts in my district would have um, because they refused to protect uh, uh, rural districts. I just I didn't see a way that I could really support it when uh, rural districts already already have a harder time. Of making the dollars last because they essentially have to spread fewer human resources over the same amount of territory when it comes to grant applications and things like that so uh, if for no other reason I felt compelled to oppose it because of the refusal to come to the table to protect small towns and rural areas on Senate bill 7 that one would be nearly a billion dollars, um, about half of which is what you could call corporate welfare, uh, handouts to large corporations. And when, when I talked about before about the governor trying to avoid the income tax cut that Michigan families are going to get, it would also apply to, to Michigan small businesses, many of whom are taxed essentially as individual entities, as individual, you know, partnership income uh, or S-corp income. These people are taxed as, uh, as, as individuals, essentially, and... Uh, they would all be getting the same tax cut of uh, 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 0.2, which is about a, about 5%, a little less than 5% of the overall tax rate in the state. Instead, what the governor is prioritizing are handouts to major corporations and keeping the, in- the income tax rate the same. So this this whole plan, that's so why I said before, I think that the, income, the, the tax plan from the governor so far is incoherent, and the ways in which I do understand it, I'm not comfortable with. I should also add that as we're spending a billion dollars here and a billion dollars there, uh, the pre-K, the universal pre-K you talked about, or the expansion of our uh, community college Michigan Reconnect program to individuals who are 21 to 25 instead of just those over 25. These are all ideas that sound nice and maybe a, a given Republican could support them, but there's no explanation for how they're going to be paid for going forward. So right now what we're dealing with is sort of whack-a-mole where there's an idea here with no relation to an idea over there, and you got to say, well, how are we going to connect these two concepts before I can say, yes, I'm in? And uh, and so even though I probably wouldn't have been inclined to support much of this in the first place, um, that's that's an additional problem that I don't know how anybody could get past.
0: Right. So other than the two appropriations bills, we have Senate Bill 13 that moves our presidential primary here in Michigan up from mid-March to the end of February, placing it before Super Tuesday when most of the southern states hold their primaries. This is after South Carolina moved up their primary to the very beginning of February Michigan primary will be on Tuesday, February 27th of next year. So we're just over 12 months away. Why do you think this is a top issue for Michigan Democrats? And then you and all the other Republicans in a party line vote voted against this in both houses. Uh, What's the problem with putting the primary a few weeks earlier?
1: That was a blatantly partisan move. The DNC has essentially told Michigan, here's what we want you in line. And because they all control it, they, they made that move on party lines. But Republicans not only don't get anything out of it, it's not like it's in our interest to move our primary for no reason. But in fact, because we'd be moving out of line, according to the RNC's uh, sort of preferred order of March, um, Michigan would be docked somewhere between 85 and 90 percent of our delegates at the 2024 National Convention. So there's no good reason for any Republican to support it Um, and If there ever is going to be a good reason, it would have to be with some real structural changes that would improve our election processes in some other way, and none of that's been put on the table. So I was a hard no on all three of those votes, especially the presidential primary one and the corporate welfare piece. That's
0: all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Representative Fink, and you've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.